1: The pioneer of the cohousing movement, Zev Pace, once said about living in community, it's the longest, most expensive personal growth workshop you will ever take. Through the years, Diana Leaf Christian has come to understand some of the most effective ways to live and sustain an intentional community. One of the governance systems she's familiar with is called sociocracy. Sociocracy is a method of organization and decision making that values equality, collaboration, and the rights of people to decide the conditions under which they live and work. Its principles and practices are very different from parliamentary procedure and majority rule. Majority rule can lead to a divided society and promotes competition and dominance instead of cooperation and equality. Sociocracy is a whole system science approach to governance that creates resilience, and a coherent system. It uses transparency, inclusiveness, and accountability to increase harmony, effectiveness, and productivity. How does this differ from current democracies? Or how can this be implemented in communities? How can we bring this into our own community? This will be the subject of today's conversation with our guest, Diana Leaf Christian. Diana Leaf Christian is an author, former editor of Communities Magazine, and an international speaker and workshop presenter. She specializes in governance and decision making for intentional communities. She is also looking into building communities and sustainability, and she lives off the grid in a homestead at Earth Haven Echo Village in Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. She's the author of Creating a Life Together, Practical Tools to Grow Eco-Villages and Intentional Communities, and also Finding Community, How to Join an Eco-Village or Intentional Community. Join us for the next hour as we explore finding, resonating, and working effectively with community with our guest, Diana Leaf Christian. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Diana, welcome. Thank you. I'd love to begin, just going back to the beginning of your own experience of being in a community, living in community. And this goes back many, many years ago to Hawaii. Can you tell us what that was like, how that was set up? Well,
2: I lived in shared group households with myself and other friends and housemates in uh, two different houses that my friends and I rented, and then we sublet to other housemates. And I learned some things about group living, shared living at that time. But we didn't call it an intentional community. It was just a household of friends because in Hawaii in those days— You really couldn't work at a job full-time and have enough money to pay for your own apartment unless it was a very well-paying job. The cost of living was high, and the cost of houses was high to rent, and the wages were very low because Hawaii was such a desirable place to live, and there were more people available for the jobs than there were jobs. So I got my earliest days in intentional community without even knowing it. I, hadn't, I didn't know the term intentional community, but I'll tell you, I was fascinated by that new place that got started in 1964, Twin Oaks in Virginia, and that new place that got started in 1972, the farm in Tennessee, and Findhorn, which got started in, I think, 62. I was fascinated with these places and I wanted to know more, but I never ever thought I would be learning about them, much less living in one. So I'm going
1: to skip ahead and and put you in Berkeley. And because I thought it was very fascinating that you ended up living in a I think a small place in the backyard of Ernest Collenbach, who some of our listeners might remember wrote that famous. Novel Ecotopia, which he laid out. Here is here is a a system by which we could live. It was it really stimulated a lot of conversation. So can you talk about that?
2: Sure. Ernest Cullenbach wrote the book Ecotopia in 1972, describing how Northern California, Oregon, and Washington would succeed from the U.S. and create their own little country, Ecotopia. It was a science fiction novel. And when I lived in his backyard, uh, I thought, "Hey, you know, I live in Ecotopia, and I tell people I lived in Ecotopia." And it was just a little joke. And I loved the book, and I loved Chick. That was how he was known. And I wanted to become a science fiction writer so that I could write, a place like that so that I could pretend to go live in it in my mind the way I would pretended to go live in Ectopia when I was reading the book. But unfortunately, the book ended and I had to come back to Berkeley. And so <laughs> when I moved to Earth Haven Eco Village, I thought, oh, now I don't have to write science fiction, ecological science fiction, because I'm living in a place like that. And oh, my gosh, how wonderful the future has come to meet me.
1: So you also joined uh, forces with Dan Drayson and other people, uh, and you started a newsletter about communities. So you're you're starting your your you're following your bliss, as Joseph Campbell might say. You you were following your dream. What attracted you and excited you, and what was in your heart? So. Talk about that and how you also then worked with communities that turned into Communities Magazine after a while.
2: Well, yes, um, I was newly arrived in Colorado in 1981, and Dan Drayson and I together. Of started growing community newsletter, which was journalism as forcing function. He was the editor and the layout person who made these beautiful, beautiful layouts. And I was the person who'd gathered the material and wrote everything. And we were wanting to learn how do you start successful new intentional communities. We would read a paragraph here or a paragraph there in magazine articles or books, but there was nothing out there to say how you actually start them. So we had each quarterly issue, the deadline by which I had to go learn things and then write articles that Dan would edit very well. And then he would lay out and we'd get little graphics that we'd cook up. And uh, we had subscribers and we would mail. It was a physical um, newsletter because this was so long ago. There was something called bulletin boards, but there wasn't really email at that time. So we ended up having a couple of hundred subscribers And we would put this little newsletter out every single quarter. And I learned a whole lot about how communities succeed and fail, first in Colorado and then wider in the West and ultimately nationally. Then I got hired by Communities Magazine to be their editor, which I did for 14 years, reading all the articles, both the ones we used and the ones we didn't. And going to the board meetings of the Fellowship for Intentional Community, the nonprofit that owns the magazine, I had the opportunity to interview lots more founders and say, what did you do and what did you not do and how did you get this place to get started? I was interested in how did you get them started? And as I may have mentioned to you before, 90% were failing 10% 10% were succeeding, and I wanted to know why.
1: And I want to say we were, uh, my my little group, we were part of that 90%. We I, we started an intentional community and bought property, and uh, I wouldn't say that we failed because we continued to remain friends even to this day, and it's a circle that I, is part of my support circle, but, but the intentional community part just didn't work. So I'd love to talk about those, those early years, about the heartfelt enthusiasm and optimism of how it could work and what, what failed and what survived.
2: Are you asking me to quickly list maybe the eight things that groups that succeeded did? Oh, that would be great. Let's – let's yes, please. Okay. What I learned, having known nothing at all about this, but what I learned from the founders of those that succeeded and failed was that what you need to succeed is a clear and thorough mission and purpose for what you're doing and why you're doing it so that you can attract through your clear and thorough membership process – The people who want to do what you're doing in the way that you're doing it for the reasons that you are and deflect away those who want to do something else. So those two things, membership and clear mission and purpose, you need a way to help people stay accountable to the agreements that you make and the agreements need to be clear and in writing. Not we remember them vaguely, but, you know, in writing and you have to help people stay accountable because people will violate agreements and then try to get away with it or not even realize they're doing that. And th- there needs to be a way to help us remember, oh, we are creating these. We care about this. This is how we help our own people stay accountable. Um, the groups need to have a clear understanding of what you do and don't – what you do need to know. You need to know legal entities. You need to know the laws that you are embedded in and subject to in your municipality or county, the state, the state health department and the IRS and the national government. You need to know that so that you can know if you're going to take the risk to violate those agreements or not. And if, the, if you do take the risk, what are the potential consequences so that you can clearly let anyone joining you know what they're getting into. You need... Um, You need to understand legalities and finances. You need to know what you need to know. You can't just do it without any understanding of managing a project. You've got to manage your project. And that means that you do things like bookkeeping, like cash flow projections, like um, making sure you're keeping track of what you've agreed to do and making sure you're keeping track of who's going to do what when and that kind of thing. You also need to um, make sure you have a good time with lots of shared enjoyable activities to create lots of oxytocin, to create lots of feelings of shared trust and gratitude with the people that you're having the shared enjoyable activities with. And you need to have a way to communicate with one another that is um, helpful and useful and empathetic and connecting and warm and friendly, such as learning in BC, as compared to way- learning, learning. nonviolent communication with the acronym NVC. I I highly recommend people learn that if they're going to do intentional community and then use it to help themselves. They need a really good conflict resolution method as well, and I recommend restorative circles, a very specific and clear method that got started in Brazil in the mid-'90s. And so with nonviolent communication and... uh, And Restorative Circles, the group, is going to be doing well in communication. But at the heart of it, at the foundation of it, underlying all of it, is a fair and participatory governance structure, decision-making method, and all of that. That is crucial and basic, in my opinion.
1: I'm here with Diana Leif Christian. She's the author of Finding Community, How to Join an Eco-Village or Intentional Community. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, dianaleafchristian.org. And she spells her middle name, Leafe, L-E-A-F-E, dianaleafchristian.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Diana Leaf Christian, and I want to spell her name once more because uh, her middle name has an E in it. It's Diana Leaf L E A F E Christian, and uh, if you want to look her up on the internet, um, Diana, I want to talk about. I know that you, and I mentioned in the introduction, you have really researched and studied through all of the years and decades that you've been doing this, you have discovered something, uh, sociocracy. And I would love for you to talk about how sociocracy, what what that is, and then how it differs from maybe consensus-oriented way of governance. Sure, be happy to. Sociocracy means governance by
2: peers and colleagues. It's a word made up by its creator, Gerard Indenberg, a Dutch electrical engineer back in the 1970s in the Netherlands. And the socio part means peers and colleagues. And the theocracy part means governance by. Another term for it in the U.S. used by some is dynamic governance. And it's a whole systems governance structure. It involves feedback loops, uh, circles like committees that are linked together by two people who are members of two adjacent circles and send the flow of information in two directions between the circles. And it has various kinds of meetings, but the meetings that determine policies have various um, methods for doing things, for creating new proposals, for considering and deciding proposals. That's called consent decision-making, not consensus, but consent, and ways to select people for roles to help people do their roles even better through uh, role improvement feedback, and consenting to other circle members. Those are the seven parts of sociocracy, as I see it, the circles and double links, the feedback loops in those five meeting processes and um, why I like it so much is that it if you use all seven parts and you use them correctly and everybody in the group learns it and thus can do it and they're not trying to switch it over to some other thing, these seven parts work as checks and balances against various kinds of abuses of power. It serves as checks and balances against top-down people, who might do autocratic? I'll tell you what to do, kind of power, and it serves as checks and balances against um, what some of us in the communities movement have sometimes called the tyranny of the minority, having to do with uh, too too consistent or too frequent blocking from the same folks who don't want the community to do certain things that most other people in the community do want the community to do, and so they block proposals and the community suffers some conflict. When sociocracy is done correctly, that really doesn't happen. My whole thing, I just want to give you a meta-level comment, Justine, is that I'm looking for how can intentional communities of all kinds, ecovillages, co-housing, shared group households, all kinds, experience more joy and more sense of wonderful harmony, trust, and connection, and much less conflict. And so, What I have seen is that when sociocracy is used correctly because it's at the heart and the center of everything, that is, how we govern ourselves, it has this ripple effect through the whole organization, through the whole community or the whole member-led group, you know, like a social justice activist group or a bicycle co-op or a car co-op. Whatever group is using it, it tends to help them have far less conflict and to feel more harmony and connection. You asked me a minute ago to contrast that with consensus decision making. I know consensus well because I've used it for 22 years, am a trainer in it, and can facilitate meetings. And so I can really easily compare these two because I'm also a trainer in sociocracy. Sociocracy is a whole system of governance that includes decision making. Consensus is a method of decision making. And so. So, what's the difference? Well, governance it. includes more than decision-making. So let's talk about governance for just a minute. It's how you organize your work tasks and how you organize your policies to guide those work tasks and who decides who does what, when, and how, and how you know if how you did the work tasks is successful and do you want to change them in any way, given the feedback from real life once you try it. And, um how do we organize our resources of time, money, and energy? Those are basically the three kinds of resources we have in any intentional community. And um so sociocracy includes creating feedback loops, that is to say, ways we will later measure and evaluate every proposal once it has been implemented. Well, we include feedback loops in every proposal whenever we can, And then anytime we revisit the implemented, Proposal, we look to see if we want to keep it or change it or throw it out based on the ways we said earlier when we made the proposal that we would um, set it up to
1: how, how will we measure it and evaluate it. So, Diana, let's just look at a, an example. So when you're talking about the way we're deciding how to—the governance and as, as opposed to— uh, Just decision-making. Just decision-making, governance— Let's suppose that there's a task that uh, needs doing. Uh-huh. I, I don't know, make up a task. Of Clean the kitchen. Oh, cleaning the kitchen. Okay. That's the task that needs doing. How would that task then be distributed in this governance of sociocracy? It's different from decision-making consensus. The method of decision-making
2: in sociocracy, which is one of its seven parts, is specifically about decision-making. It's called consent decision-making. There are six steps to it. And... It is based on the other three parts of having very clear aims for every circle. A circle is like
1: a committee. So let's say an aim
2: is that to have a clean kitchen. No, no, that no. Would, no, that would be a work task. Aims are ongoing objectives of the okay, circle. So, so the circle that we're talking about here would be the community building circle. And they would have, as one of their um, things that they were in charge of, was making sure that it's clean and lovely. And a pleasure to be in. I can compare and contrast these two things better if I go back to what you said before, which is what's the difference? Okay. Consensus is a very specific decision-making method created by Quakers in the 1600s in England, and it involves approving the proposal, standing aside from the proposal, or blocking the proposal. And any one person can block it if they believe the proposal will harm the group in a way that they will say why. This gets misused quite often in intentional communities, and there turns out to be demoralization and heartbreak and conflict because of either people who could block so you don't even bring up the proposal that you know they would block because you know that they don't like that, whatever that idea is, or they do block. Whereas in sociocracy, there are seven parts. Only one of them is about decision-making, and that consent decision-making method doesn't have blocking, and people can't really stop something unless— because they, the group that's in the specific small circle, they're the ones who made the proposal, and they can modify the proposal when they're making it, and they can modify the proposal when they're considering it in consent
1: decision-making. I'm still confused a little bit, Diana. So if if in consensus method, it's you need unanimity, you need... A- well, you need everybody in... The group who
2: is meeting, which is generally many more people that would be in a circle in sociocracy, you need them all to either approve the proposal or stand aside. So one vote, can't.
1: one person, and majority N- rules we're and talking, No, we're talking—no, wait, that's a whole different Oh, system. that's a majority different Majority
2: rule voting— where 51% vote for it, is a completely different decision-making method than consensus. Than
1: consensus. It needs a unanimity, though.
2: Yeah, well, yes and no. That is to say, the people who stand aside uh, can go ahead and stand aside, so it's not unanimous, really. They're just standing aside, which means they say, I don't really want this proposal, but I'm not going to stop
1: it. So they're kind of disgruntled, but they go along with it.
2: Well, maybe they wish to register their dislike of it, but they're not going to stop it because they know everybody okay. else
1: wants it. How is that different than from the uh, sociocracy? I can't say it in a few words. Okay. That's why I, I do a three-day workshop. I, uh,
2: but I can say that the reason consent decision-making works is because it's founded on three things. The fact that every circle has clear aims, the fact that you use feedback loops In every proposal, that is to say, ways you're going to later measure and evaluate it, and the fact that you understand what an objection is, because in the fourth step of the six steps of consent decision-making, you can object or not object to the proposal. And if you object, all it means is, hello, I see something here. I'm not ready to consent to it yet. And then you point out what about the proposal isn't quite good enough yet, and then you modify the proposal And then you do another consent round and you see if you have any objections. So you have to understand what objections are or are not. It's like a three-legged stool. One leg is you do understand what objections are and are not. They're not blocks. And then you do understand the aims of the circle and how clear that is, because that's what you base all proposals that you make on. That's what you base all objections on. That's how you uh, resolve objections.
1: Okay, so what I'm getting, that that's helpful, Diana, what I'm getting when you say three legs of the stool. And the third one is that you use feedback loops. That feedback loop. So it's not, it's taking it away from that either or you object or you're for and it, it it expands the field of of discussion and and contribution then i think i could um say a few words to make more
2: clear the difference in, in a short time which is that when we're creating a proposal in consensus it is rather a long process of coming to agreement for what we can all live with And once we have made the decision, which might be over several different meetings, and there's many of us in the room because it's a big group, unlike in sociocracy, small little circles— In a consensus, once we have made that decision, we really don't want to revisit it because we don't want to go through all that again. It took a lot of time and energy and possibly emotional
1: energy. I can just hear people groan when they say, oh, no, we're not going to go back over that
2: again. And we have heard actual humans say that in our various groups that use consensus. I know you have. I certainly have. Yes, I have. In sociocracy, you build into your intentions from the get-go that when you create the proposal and when you consider and decide it with consent decision-making – Uh, you're going to change it, maybe, if you want to. You let real life inform you. You put into it ways you're later going to measure it and evaluate it in order to see if you want to keep it, change it, or throw it out. And this is where it's different from consensus. Because if I have an objection, which is not a block, and I'm afraid that a certain bad thing, which I could call X, might happen if we consent to that proposal, we can write... Is X happening as one of the ways we measure it and evaluate it? And we can move the date of our evaluation much closer to after we implemented it. And then we can ask me, Diana, now that we have added the words about is X happening and we're moving when we check this out like a week after we implement it, do you think this would be safe enough to try? Would it be good enough for now? Because proposals in sociocracy only have to be good enough for now and safe enough to try. And I go, yeah, yeah, I think it's safe enough to try now that we add that in, because I want us to make sure X doesn't happen. Exactly. Which might be happy. legitimate. It might be. Yes. And we get to find out from real life instead of being like Nostradamus and having to become clairvoyant.
1: Oh, great. All right. I'm here with Diana Leaf Christian. She's the author of Finding Community, How to Join an Eco-Village or Intentional Community. I'm here with my guest Diana Leaf Christian and she is the author of several books. One is Creating a Life Together: Practical Tools to Grow Eco-villages and Intentional Communities. And we're we're talking about sociocracy as a way of governance. And I know that you give like 3-day workshops on this and we we have this 1 hour and we're just we're just kind of Tapping into the surface, and hopefully people will be interested enough to really go into more research on this. But I'm wondering, as you talk about uh, making a a decision and, and writing it down and having someone uh, maybe object to it or be concerned about some part, and then that gets written in— when when we come up with a proposal, I'm just wondering some of the questions we might ask about that proposal in the first place. That uh, we we use the five Ws, like like what is the purpose of this proposal, and who will be responsible to carry it out, and where will this policy be applied? These are the the journalistic who, what, when, where, why. Uh, when will it be executed and for how long will it sustain itself and uh, why is it necessary, what, what what does it intend to do? So th- would you agree that these are some of the questions that should be asked at the very beginning so that that policy is very clear as to why it's being set in motion? Exactly. In fact, the proposal-forming process, which
2: occurs before... The consent decision-making process in sociocracy proposal forming is very clear and thorough and specific about um, gathering all that kind of data to start with, so that proposals which you create in your circle um, with everybody's input in a fair participatory way uh, end up being one or more very clear, specific proposals that cover everything you could have thought of so that we don't suddenly have a gap or a hole because we thought of everything if we didn't think of everything that's okay too because we can um object to the proposal and then modify it to see to, to you know to
1: make it better and to make it put in to the add thing we missed in that that clause that said if this happens then exactly or or it. let's say we forgot to
2: put in the who you know who what why when yes. and where we forgot to put in the who and then we say oh Objection, oh, thank you, we'll get back to you. Okay, so what's your objection once we get back to you? Oh, my objection is that we forgot to say who's going to do it. Oops, we forgot that. Okay, (laughs) well, we're going to have Justine
1: do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the other thing, too, about consensus or another kind of way of doing circles is often people get assigned their task. And how would it work with uh, sociocracy as far as... uh, when, some, when there's a certain task to be done, how does someone sign up for that? They Do they get assigned it, whether they want to or not, or how, how does that work? Well, each
2: circle is a committee, and they have a domain, which means their area of responsibility. So if you think of an intentional community, there would probably be... Besides the general circle, which is like a steering committee in the very middle of all the other circles, you might have one that does finance, one that does land use planning and site design and repair and maintenance, and one that does promotion and marketing and – marketing sounds funny – but, you know, promotion and advertising and so on, and one that might do membership and all-membership services and community building. These would have still – Smaller circles, or that is to say, more specific,
1: focused, and concrete circles. So For, how do they get the new the members of those particular smaller circles? I can't say it in a few sentences because it's a three-day workshop. Yes.
2: But they get them through a means that is fair and participatory. I can tell you that much. So if there was a specific task to be done, it would be one of us who is in the circle that had that as its domain. So let's say there's a task called putting all the invoices for the annual dues and fees into everybody's mailbox here in the community and then emailing them out to everybody. A simple little clerical task. I'm one of the members of the finance committee, and so we just generally agree to, in the five or six or seven people in our small circle that it'll be me who does it. It's not imposed upon me, and I can volunteer to do it, or we can just decide that I'll do it and we will ask me, do you have time, Diana? And I'll say, yeah, I have time, and I can do that. And then I do it. But it wouldn't be done by somebody in land use. It wouldn't be done by somebody in the membership circle. It would be in our circle because we're handling finance.
1: Okay. So it's, it's related to the committee that you finally are on. Mm-hmm. Also, I would imagine is gotten together by, by your personal interest or personal talents yes. or experience. Yes.
2: Yes, we who—I'm I, I, laughing at myself because I have no financial talent whatsoever, but imagine that I did. Then I would be in the finance circle because my skills and my interests would lead me to want to serve the community in that way through financial services for the community. We take care of the property— taxes. We take care of the liability insurance. We take care of the annual dues and fees and collecting money and spending money and keeping the budget and doing the cash flow projection. We take care of the capital budget and the operations budget. And so that would be the things that we know that we ongoingly do. And we create the policies that guide our work. And we do the work. So there's the tasks that you're doing. That's one thing. That's me sending out all these invoices on email, and then there's the creating the policies for our circle for how we do our tasks. Right, exactly.
1: I mean, I'm just thinking about um, a newly formed group that I'm just become part of, and it, one of my natural talents is to take notes. That's I, I've done it for you know, over 40 years, and I, I just can't help myself. I always take notes at every meeting I go to. I take notes. I just do it as a natural outflow of who I am, and so I that's what I started doing in this group, just naturally, and then because I have a facility with computer, then I got up on an e-list for all of our members, and I automatically just started sending out these notes to everyone, and, and it, it just kind of flowed naturally. Nobody assigned it, but people appreciated it. And that's the other part, too. When other people step up with their talents and their experience, it's so wonderful to then work with them because you're working with their natural abilities, and it complements something else and somebody else. So is that kind of the way it works in a a certain? Well, I think
2: that's how it ends up, um, that in sociocracy there's a way that people choose who is in the circle. The circle members uh, consent to each other to be in the circle so that they're working with people that they know are collaborative and cooperative and who have the skills and interest or who want to learn them and who want to contribute to whatever the domain is of that circle, domain meaning area of responsibility, and who understand the aims, aims being the deliverable things that we provide the people we serve, the physical things and the services, financial services.
1: Let me ask you this question. If someone steps up, then they are committing to be responsible for something. What, What happens when somebody fails that responsibility? for whatever reason, and they're not doing it. How How is that handled then in a group, in a sociocratic group? Well, there is no specific
2: structure or instructions about that in the pieces of structure that are sociocracy. In other words, it doesn't address it. But because I live in an intentional community and I know how sociocracy works for the parts that are there, I can tell you that probably the person in the circle, let's say it's finance, and let's say it was me and I didn't send out those invoices, I would let everybody know that I didn't do it. Or somebody would say, Hey Diana, did you do that? I didn't see them. And I'd say, no, I didn't do it. And and then we would create another date by which I would do it. And then we would and I would have my peers and colleagues there in the finance circle who all knew that they were counting on me and I knew I they were counting on me. So it would just naturally probably flow that either I would then do it Later, after I failed to do it the first time, or maybe I would ask somebody else to do it or to help me do it. Right. But I think you're referring to that thing where a person is a little bit irresponsible and just won't do that thing. Yeah. And so there is a remedy for that in sociocracy. And it's quite unusual given that we're used to intentional community. And that is if I consistently failed to do what I said I would do, and the other people in the circle saw that I kept not doing my tasks and kept not helping the circle meet its um, its goals and do its tasks mm-hmm. given our aims, which is basically that we provide various kinds of financial services, then probably someone would propose that I leave the circle. And yes. this would be a little process proposal, and there would be five steps in this, and I would not be one of the people called upon But the other people would be called upon. And if they consented to that proposal, I would be asked to leave. Now, not to leave the community, but to leave the finance circle. Maybe I would apply to join to another circle, and maybe in that circle I would do the job, and they'd say yes to me. Why do we get the right to say who we will or won't work with in order to make sure we select the folks who, like you, Justine, are known to be responsible when it comes to your favorite task of taking minutes are known to do what they say they'll do so that we can fulfill the aims of our circle and not be stopped and stymied over and over again by that person who just won't do it and can't seem to get themselves to do it.
1: So effectiveness is always like the bottom line. Are we being effective in our mission in this committee? Yeah. And um, so that that takes me to the other thought about how does a new member, let's say in you live at— um, uh, I live at Earth Haven. Earth, Earth Haven, uh-huh. and,
2: but we don't use sociocracy.
1: Oh, you don't use. Uh-uh. So, okay, all right. So if if there's a new member coming in, how how is that new member integrated into the process? What's the most effective way?
2: Well, in my opinion, and I do have some, the best thing to do would be for that member to do tasks for one or more circles until he or she could get training in sociocracy, which I would have the in-house trainers in the community train that person um, or train new incoming people once a year or twice a year, depending on how many new incoming people they had, so that they don't have to train each individual one over and over because it takes a bit of doing. And so let's say they offer a workshop in-house twice a year for the incoming people. And the incoming people don't have consent decision making rights until such time as they are trained. This is analogous to when someone enters a community that uses consensus. And so they the, if the community is smart and I hope they are, they will not allow that new incoming person to have consensus, rights, the right to block, stand aside, or approve something, until they've been trained in how consensus works. Do you see what I mean?
1: Yes, yeah, so that <laughs> they, they come analogous. in and, and they're not making assumptions. I've, I've seen many times a new person in the circle, we have to go through this whole process of their feeling they've, they've not been heard. You, you know what I'm talking about? That? I, I totally do. And by the way,
2: sociocracy doesn't really indulge us in that. Unless, unless, here's the unless, somebody in the circle, perhaps that person says, I propose. A discussion because I'd like to talk to you about how I'm feeling because I don't believe I've been hurt.
1: We're butting up against time, so I really want to talk about this more fully, Diana, just in just one moment. I'm here with Diana Leaf Christian. She's the author of Creating a Life Together: practical tools to grow eco-villages and intentional communities. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Mm-hmm. I'm here with Diana Leaf Christian, and she's the author of several books. One, Finding Community, How to Join an Eco-Village or Intentional Community, and also the book Creating a Life Together, Practical Tools to Grow Eco-Villages and Intentional Communities. And Diana, I just mentioned uh, we're talking about new members in the group, and and you and I have both experienced this. This new member comes in, and they seem to just take all the oxygen out of the room because they feel like they've never been heard, and they just are are just taking up all this space. So how do you deal with that? What you mentioned earlier was that the person wants
2: to have a lot of processing about their feelings and their issues that they believe they have not been heard in the group. What would happen if they were in a consensus decision-making group is one thing that you and I have both experienced and probably many listeners, and it's not pleasant. And in sociocracy, there's two um, ameliorating factors about that. The first is they will have been heard in every single round, in every single step, in each of the five meeting processes, because we go around and we hear from each person around the circle, the facilitator gestures courteously to each person, and we hear from them. We're not hearing discussion. We're hearing them respond to clarifying questions, quick reaction round, consenting to the proposal where you say objection or no objection. And if they object, then we hear what their reason is after we finish the round. And then we modify the proposal. So that's really not going to happen very much that the person believes they have not been heard. But let's say for some reason they do because they don't understand how sociocracy works yet because they haven't been trained yet or maybe they don't like it very much because they're used to that they want to talk as much as they want to for as long as they want to about any topic that they want to having to do mostly with their emotions. And maybe they're not getting it that, well, we do that when we have a circle that's for that, but we're not doing it here in the finance committee because we're going to try to talk about invoices and things. And so the other thing that can happen is that we let them know if you want to have a discussion about your views and beliefs about what just happened and your feelings about it, propose a period of time in which we'll have a discussion and we'll see if we get consent from everyone. If we get consent from everyone to talk about this now, then we will. But if we don't, we won't. So I propose that we talk about my feelings for the next 10 minutes. And Justine says objection. And each person around the circle says objection. And then I realized that we didn't get consent. And why not? Because each person says, well, I actually want to move on because we have to not only talk about invoices, but the liability insurance and the property tax, which is due next month. And so, see, the circle is about moving forward on its work tasks. And someone says to me, Diana, why don't you go over to the processing circle where they hold optional not mandatory but optional shared groups where people can talk about their feelings with others who want to talk with them about it and it's 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 created for that purpose but right now we need to get down to business here because of what we're doing but that's your option to go to to that circle and get a get an evening a meeting set up for people to do this well, gee, Justine, you're going to come to the meeting when I'm going to talk about my feelings. You probably aren't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I probably won't go to that meeting. I'm
2: I'm on task. (laughs) I know. And various other people will or won't go depending on their interest, right? But we're not holding our finance circle hostage to my sudden sad feelings because somehow I don't like the sociocracy thing and I want you all to know it. Once I have learned it, And once I realize that my opinion is always sought in every meeting process, in every policy meeting in my circle, then I'm probably gonna relax and go, oh, I see, I am being treated fairly and kindly and courteously. Right, right.
1: When you talk about committees and this sort of thing, circles, uh, pardon me? Circles. Or circles, excuse me, circles, uh, circles within the overall structure. Uh, then one gets the image that, oh, this is something for for a large group of people, you know. But what, what about maybe, let's say I, I'm part of a group of only seven people. Can this work for a smaller group? Absolutely, it can.
2: First of all... Much of the time in intentional communities and listeners who live in communities or have lived and will know this, you double up, you know, you're in more than one circle, you're in more than one committee, you have one role in one committee, you have another role in another committee, and so on. So that's pretty common in communities. Uh, We need all hands on deck to get all the work done, right? But another thing is, if we're just seven people and we're starting out in our community, we could all be in the general circle and we meet on Tuesday night and we're all in the general circle where we do overall longer-term planning and we coordinate all the parts. Then the next Tuesday, we're all in the membership circle where we do community services for incoming members and all the services for us as members. And then the next Tuesday, we're in the promotion circle where we're letting everybody know about us through our website and our blog and our newsletter and all of that. And then the next Tuesday. This is four Tuesdays now in the month. We're all on the land use site planning circle and maintenance and repair. And one of our people serves as the bookkeeper. And they're their own circle, but they're one person, and they do the books. And we know we're going to have 25 or 30 people later. And we only do this as an interim strategy, as they say in permaculture, transitional strategy. After a while, we're going to have the normal cluster of circles like you see in sociocracy. But not yet. There's only seven of us.
1: Okay, so it, it would work. It would it would actually uh, work for a smaller smaller group of people, and it and then it might expand uh, in a healthy way. Is what I'm really getting that this is a way of being effective in in healthy ways, and so the the base is foundation is very firm and rooted rather than just kind of skating on the top, and uh, it's very different. So, But let's talk about power and equality, because uh, inevitably, just as human beings, we we get into power struggles sometimes. I mean, it, it just crops up often, I won't even say sometimes. And what, you're, what we're learning to do in this sort of thing is to use power in a different way rather than power over. We're using to use, like, power with. And uh, so can you say something about that? Well, that's one of the things I really like about sociocracy is
2: that it's fair and it's kind and it's clear and it's specific and it's explicit. It's based on three values, exp- uh equivalence of voice, that we all have equal say on how we create policies to guide our work in any given circle. And uh, transparency, we all know everything about the whole organization because every single circle, all their finances, all their everything is completely clear to all of us. All we have to do is read the minutes and we get reports from circle to circle. And uh, the third value is effectiveness. We get our job done better. So let me tell you the four benefits that people in communities that use it say. I drew these four benefits from testimonials of people who say things on YouTube videos or who say things in articles. And so the first one is better meetings. We've had more decisions in the last two months than we did in the last two years. This is a group, a co-housing community, that started Sociocracy two months prior, and now two months later, they've made more decisions. Our meetings are faster and clearer, and we get more done. After our last meeting, we got so much done, we started Dancing for Joy. That's a community in Colombia, Aldea Feliz Eco Village. The second benefit is uh, we get more done, which you've already heard. And the third benefit is we're better organized. Both accountability and inspiration go up. That's what a guy said at a co-housing community that uses it. Uh, We all know who's doing what, and we seem to uh, feel more clear in our organization In that the flow of information is better. That's the community in Columbia. And the last one is we feel more connected to each other. We we have more sense of connection,
1: well-being, and goodwill between us. So what I get from all of that we've been talking about for the last hour is it there's a balance here between structure or order and uh letting things uh and that creative process, which sometimes looks chaotic. So it's it's kind of a, a balance between the structure without being authoritarian top down and and creativity and the creativity of of Chaos, I would say. <laughs> well, there, I know
2: what you mean because you talked about the balance between structure and chaos um, in an earlier conversation. What The way I look at it is, uses different words, but I think it's getting at what you're getting at, Justine, which is that there's a very clear structure and steps in sociocracy, at least the way I teach it. And that allows the people in any circle to have tremendous freedom to respond any way they like, very flexibly and dynamically to a change that comes to the organization from within or any kind of change that comes upon them from without sudden unexpected weird things from the county or the bank or something. And we can move so fast and so flexibly because we have this wonderful structure. So the structure isn't top-down and authoritarian. The structure is like the frame of a bicycle or the skeleton of a body, it allows the rest of that bicycle to turn infinitely and go where it needs to go, and it allows our body to dance and flow around like this. But but actually, the structure itself remains the same. The structure gives you freedom paradoxically.
1: Okay, I kind of think of it as the bones that hold up the body, and then the body is very, very flexible around that. Diana, I want to thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions program today. I've been speaking with Diana Leaf Christian. She is the author of Creating a Life Together, Practical Tools to Grow Eco-Villages and Intentional Communities, and also Finding Community, How to Join an Eco-Village or Intentional Community. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, dianaleifchristian.org, and she spells her middle name Leaf, L E A F E, Christian.org, Diana Leaf Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3609.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973 thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a 1,000 hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707 468 5215. Please join us next time as we explore new dimensions.